This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology, reducing the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Show, The David Letterman Show, Needs to Know, NPR, The Onion Radio News, and The Progressive, with a bonus clip for our iTunes app users from Need to Know. Two of the biggest funders of climate denial propaganda trying to conceal the scientific consensus that humans are warming the planet are the oil company ExxonMobil and the oil tycoons of the Koch family, led by Charles and David Koch. And two of the biggest funders of NOVA, PBS's leading science program and one of the main sources of scientific information on television are ExxonMobil and David Koch. Is there something wrong with this picture? PBS doesn't think so. Nova's executive producer asked about Koch's funding of the program, declared that Nova, quote, maintains complete independent editorial control of its content, close quote, which is, of course, what commercial broadcasters say about their sponsors. The reason we have public broadcasting in the first place is because we don't believe them. PBS ombud Michael Gettler, for his part, asserts that, quote, as a viewer of what strikes me and a lot of others as a consistently first-rate program, I trust Nova, close quote. If trust were an adequate response, though, then you wouldn't need to have an ombud, would you? Koch's funding of NOVA became an issue after NOVA reran an episode on August 31st about human evolution that veered off into a peculiar discussion of the positive benefits of climate change. Quote, We're not adapted to any one environment or climate, but to many. We are creatures of climate change, close quote, the narrator declared, followed by scientist Mark Maslin saying, quote, we can survive the future because we are that creature, because we are that smart, close quote. What the program doesn't say is that Maslin believes we can survive the future by restricting the burning of fossil fuels that makes billions for Nova's sponsors, that he instead comes across as the kind of don't worry, be happy Pollyanna that those sponsors like to fund. Well, that's just a coincidence, isn't it? If you trust Nova. Bay Area of Canada are likely to die out in the next three decades, possibly sooner, as global warming melts more Arctic ice and thus reduces their hunting opportunities. This according to Canadian biologists. Yes, they have Canadian biologists. Think of it. The animals in western Hudson Bay, one of 19 discrete subpopulations of polar bears around the Arctic, are losing fat and body mass as their time on the floating sea ice gets shorter and shorter, according to the researchers from the University of Alberta. It's the polar bear diet. 
Everybody's doing it. The sea ice is where the bears hunt. Ringed and bearded seals, their favorite prey. Oh, and they have to build up strength fast. And uh, sorry, they have to build up enough fat in the winter when the ice is at its greatest to get through the summer when the ice retreats from the shoreline, and the bears find no food. But the ice has been melting earlier in the spring and forming later in the autumn, so the bears are now spending on average three more weeks on land per year without food than they did three decades ago. As a consequence, their body weight in that time has dropped by 60 pounds. Females have lost 10 percent of their body length. And you don't want a short female polar bear if you're a male. Trust me. And the West Hudson Bay population has declined from 1,200 animals to 900. If the decline in sea ice continues as predictions indicate it will, it's feared the bears could die out in 25 to 30 years, perhaps as few as 10. If there's a succession of years with very low sea ice cover. The Hudson Bay group of bears is the second most southerly population, and might be expected to feel the effects of climate change early. The Arctic sea ice, as a whole, reached its lowest ever recorded extent in September three years ago. In the last two years, it's recovered, but it's once again declining rapidly this year. Has been called our nation's leading environmentalist and is the author of this bestseller entitled "Earth: E A A R T H: Making a Life on a Tough New Planet." Please welcome Bill McKibben, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for being here. I learned uh, uh, a couple of,、uh, I think,、uh, important things from reading this book. First of all,、uh, the the title uh, uh, now, in retrospect, is nearly self-explanatory. But tell people why the changing of the spelling of the word Earth. Why the extra A? Well, the planet is a different place than the one we were born on, too. Not completely. There's the same number of continents. Gravity still works, but it's a warmer place, a lot warmer. This summer gives you some sense of. What that feels like、That's、in its、right. early stage, and and、uh, it, when it when it heats up like this, is that in fact an indication of climate change? Absolutely. So far this year,、uh, the federal government just reported that we've seen the warmest six months, the warmest year, and the warmest decade on record.、Mm -hmm. 19 nations set new temperature, all-time temperature records this summer. We talked with our、uh, colleagues in Pakistan in May. We were on the phone with them one day. And、they said、uh, people in Pakistan don't normally complain about the heat. It's often hot there. But they said today is hot.、Uh, how hot? Well, we just set the new all-time Asia temperature record: 129 degrees. So you know,、wow. New York today, this afternoon, it was 95. Turn、yeah. that up 
35 and then take away most of the air conditioning and that's what Pakistan was like in May before it started having the worst flooding that it had ever seen. Um, uh, I, I used to think that uh, uh, that maybe there was, uh, and, and by the way this, this uh, people say it happened in the early 80s but truthfully it began with the industrial revolution. Is that a, a safe enough assumption and it's all about carbon uh, parts per million in the atmosphere. We started learning to burn coal and gas and oil and every time we do we put some more CO2 mm -hmm. in the atmosphere for a long time not enough to make a difference but by the late 1980s I mean I wrote the first book about climate change in 1989 by then it was beginning to tell frankly it's happened more quickly than we expected even in the last two decades right. and, and what is the the the, the mark uh, years and years and years ago it was 229 parts per million of carbon dioxide what is it now it was 275 all through the what we call the Holocene the 10,000 years of human civilization now it's about 392 mm -hmm. and that's bad news because uh, about two years ago our best climatologist James Hansen at NASA told us, uh, they published a paper saying any amount of carbon in the atmosphere more than 350 parts per million CO2 is not compatible with the planet on which civilization developed and to which life on Earth is adapted. Right. I mean, and, and so that's, uh, we, we've surpassed that. Yes. Now, now, now when will we be walking around saying, oh boy, too much carbon? When, well, when is that going <laughs> to... <laughs> that's what they're... That's what they're saying, even if they don't know it, you know, yeah. in Russia this summer and in Pakistan this summer, uh, you know, those floods come because warm air holds more water vapor right. than cold. And, and in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the frequent and seemingly more uh, frequent uh, shift in uh, the seismographic uh, uh, earthquakes, what I'm trying to say, is, is that a manifest of this or is that completely a different... Uh... Earthquakes and volcanoes are probably the two things we've actually left alone, more or less, mm -hmm. on this planet. They're still close to being acts of God. They, have, they have nothing to do with the ambient temperature. You can and make, the... There may be more earthquakes happening in Greenland because as that ice drops, right. as it melts quickly, there's a lot of weight coming off the, the landmass there and that's increasing some seismic activity. But the big problems are rising sea level. Mm -hmm endless heat waves. Russia this year announced that it wasn't going to be sending any grain any place else in the world. No grain exports mm -hmm. at all because the hot weather is interfering with their ability to grow. So, so the other thing that I've learned from this book, which I suspected all along, is that there's really, we're not going to put these pieces back in place. We're not going to cool the oceans. We're not going to rebuild the ice caps. We're, 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 we're not going to change. We're not going to push the tropical climate back toward the tropics. All of this is out of the bag, not going back well, half right. Um, we're not going to stop global warming. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the other hand, everything that I've described so far happens with raising the temperature of the planet about one degree. That's what we've done so far. The climatologists are quite clear that unless we get our act together, i.e. get off fossil fuel very soon, right. that number will be four or five degrees. That's so, right. But that's not going to happen because as you point out in the book, let's just say, uh, for an example, let's shift to nuclear power. Uh, the, the hated, dreaded nuclear power. Well, not a bad idea, except we can't really afford it. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars to get a, a thing, a, a reactor up and online. Nuclear power is expensive. We're going to have to spend a lot of money to make the transition, probably most cheaply, to sun and wind. And we're going to have to do it in an all-out basis. It's right. not going to be easy. Well, here's another statistic that you point out in the book. 80% uh, of Americans drive cars. 80% of 300 million people are driving cars. 6 or 8% of Chinese 
a billion people are driving cars. What will happen when 80% of that number is driving cars in China? If that happens, then we're out of luck. The Chinese, uh, you know, the Chinese right now have about the same car ownership that we had in 1922. Right. So there's a lot of room for... Uh, and everybody will like uh, to have a car one day there. The good news is that the Chinese, frankly, are doing more than we are. About right. the, I was two months ago uh, doing a piece for the National Geographic. I was in China at the headquarters of the guy who's installed 60 million solar panels, uh, 250 million Chinese when they take a shower, the hot water is coming off the sun-heated panels on the roof. I know a guy, uh, 20 years ago, he said to me, I'm heating, this is in Southern California, I'm heating my pool. He took a, a length of garden hose, ran it up on the south uh, slope of his uh, house, and pumped the pool water up through there, and in a couple of days, the damn pool was so steamy hot he couldn't stand it. I know another guy, <laughs> I know another guy, Jimmy Carter, who... 31 years ago this summer installed solar panels right. on the White House roof only to see them taken down during the Reagan administration. Yeah. We're taking one of those panels back. It's been at the top of Unity College in central Maine for 30 years. We're taking them back down to the White House next week saying, please, it's time to put these back up. Right. And wh what do you think will happen then? Are they going to say, okay, just get in line? Or what are they going to say? I think that they'll probably be eager to do it. Look what happened when Michelle planted the garden, you know? Right, well, the next that's year, right. seed sales went up 30%. That's right, but the planting a garden doesn't threaten the, uh, the, uh, the oil that. and gas that is uh, running this. There uh, is uh, that. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, we'll be right back with Bill McKibben. Ladies and gentlemen. This is a... So here's, here's what I have uh, put together through all of this. The reason that this isn't a, uh, a plank in political platforms, the reason that this isn't being pushed by major populations of the world uh, is because these people, the world around, in power, know that really, when it comes down to it, nothing can be done to solve this problem. And if they said, we're going to get in there and solve this problem, uh, people would be uh, scared, silly, and they would say, well, come on, solve it, solve it. And they don't, they, they don't want that the pressure. Problem, the bigger problem is that we do know how to solve some of it, but there are people who just assume not. And those people, as you said, are the oil and the gas and the coal industry. Until we build a movement big enough to challenge them, we won't solve it. But we can do that. Yeah. You know, last year, we started with seven college kids and me. We started this thing called 350.org. And before the year was out, we pulled off what CNN called the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries. This October, 10-10-10, we're going for a, a, an even larger sort of worldwide global work party. That's why we want President Obama up on the roof on October 10th, putting those panels back where they belong. See, I think all of this is at... All of this is admirable, but the truth of it is, and, and correct me again if I'm not right about this, uh, the, the little individual contributions that we're encouraged to make now really don't add up to much in, in, by way of saving or, or getting this planet habitable. This is right. You're half right again. Mm -hmm. Middlebury, take an example. Take an example. Middlebury College, where I work, is probably the greenest college campus in the world. Okay? I'm always telling the kids there, we don't need 
to make this play, you know, changing the last light bulb here is less important mm -hmm. than going out and building the kind of political movement that will change things. So on, say, on the 10th of October, on this work party, people will be putting up a solar panel right. here and there, but they'll be doing it to send a political message. And that message is simple. If I can go to work and do something, then I damn well expect my political leaders to do something. Exactly. But... <clears throat> But that presupposes that the politicians will no longer be lobbied by uh, oil representatives. Uh, and, and they're it, it never they're going to roll over and say, okay, you know what, we've had our fun, take the oil, we don't need it anymore. They're not going to roll over. It was, you know, we, I think 20 years ago, my thought was that if we showed politicians that the world was coming to an end, they might do something. We need to be able to show right. them that their careers are coming to an end, and that well, might, yeah, you know, uh, motivate them a little more. <laughs> All right, and this is, this is the last one, uh, my favorite statistic about this. If we stopped uh, b b burning carbon the way we've been burning it, uh, uh, automobiles, trucks, uh, electrical generators around the world, everybody tomorrow started riding bicycles. Everybody. We were no longer putting CO2 into the atmosphere. Everybody, every member of the planet stopped doing it. The, 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 the planet would continue to heat precipitously for another 60 years. That's right. It's going to be a tough Tonight. century. <laughs> It's going to be, it's going to be a tough century. Very tough. Our job is to make sure that it's not a completely impossible century, we, and we, that's it, still within but, our power. But isn't what you're talking about adaptability really rather than, than correcting any of this? You you can adapt maybe to right. one or two degrees. You can't adapt to four or five degrees. Mm -hmm. So we got to do both. Special we gotta, hats. Have you thought about special hats? <laughs> Those will help. That's yeah. where my money is, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Special hats. Uh, well, Bill, thank you for just scaring the crap out of me. <laughs> this is the book, Earth, Bill McKibben. Good night, everybody. Why does my heart If you're like most Americans, you dream of selling all your possessions and moving to a self-sufficient off-the-grid farm in South Dakota, all while maintaining your corporate job to pay for your continued satellite TV and internet subscriptions. Well, now with GoToMeeting, you can totally disconnect from the rigors of modern life while staying completely connected. Through the use of screen sharing and conference calling through the computer or by phone, you'll be able to meet, collaborate, and present just as though you hadn't just renounced the concept of material possessions. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST to start your one-and-a-half full moon cycle free trial. That's GoToMeeting.com promo code PODCAST to start your free trial of more than three fortnights. And finally, USA Today's money section had a piece on September 20th headlined, Walmart raises bar on going green. Retailer today to announce new solar power initiative. As with a lot of what passes for reporting about the retail giant, the article felt a lot more like a press release than a serious newspaper article. For starters, if you get past the headline, you learn that Walmart's goal five years ago was to be 100% reliant on renewable energy. The new solar plan, announced here with great fanfare, is to, quote, almost double the number of locations, close quote, that use solar power. Readers also learn that Walmart has barely made a dent in its 100% goal. So this would seem to represent a significant reduction in the company's commitment to green energy, which would be the opposite of the headline suggestion that the company is raising the bar.
So why is this story about Walmart anyway? That question may have occurred to some readers as they learned well into the article that the company is not ahead of the retail pack when it comes to using renewable energy. USA Today says that's actually the Kohl's department store chain, and that another corporate giant, Kimberly Clark, produces far more green power than Walmart. Again, readers are left wondering what's so special about Walmart's efforts in this area. There is a pro forma nod to the company's many critics whose views are quickly rebutted. The article does mention in passing that Walmart, quote, isn't pursuing renewables just for good PR, close quote. But that is just what USA Today gave them. A new study concludes that an old, fundamental, and widely accepted theory of how and why phytoplankton bloom in the oceans is incorrect. The findings challenge more than 50 years of conventional wisdom about the growth of phytoplankton. They're just the ultimate basis for almost all ocean life and fisheries. And they also raise concerns that global warming, rather than stimulating ocean productivity, may actually curtail it in some places. The analysis was published in the journal Ecology by Michael Barenfield at Oregon State, one of the world's leading experts in the use of remote sensing technology to examine ocean productivity. It concludes that a theory first developed in 1953 called the critical depth, depth hypothesis offers an incomplete and inaccurate explanation for summer phytoplankton blooms observed since the 1800s in the North Atlantic. These blooms provide the basis for one of the world's most productive fisheries. The old theory made common sense and seemed to explain what people were seeing, Barenfeld said. It was based on the best science and data available at the time, most of which was obtained during the calmer seasons of late spring and early summer. But now we have satellite remote sensing technology providing us with much more comprehensive view of the oceans on literally a daily basis. And they strongly contradict the critical depth hypothesis. That was that phytoplankton bloom in temperate oceans in the spring because of improving light conditions, longer and brighter days, and warming of the surface layer. Warm water is less dense than cold. There's a problem. A nine-year analysis of satellite records of chlorophyll and carbon data indicate this long-held hypothesis is not true. The rate of phytoplankton accumulation actually begins to surge during the middle of winter, the coldest, darkest time of year. Figure out the consequences yourself. On your own nickel. In a pioneering use of CT scans, scientists at Woodhole, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution have discovered the carbon dioxide-induced global warming is in the process of killing off a major coral species in the Red Sea. Why do we care what happens in a communist ocean? I don't understand. As summer sea surface temperatures have remained about 1.5 degrees Celsius above ambient over the last 10 years, growth of the coral has declined by 30% and could cease growing altogether by 2070 or sooner. They report in the July 16th issue of the journal Science. The warming in the Red Sea and the resultant decline in the health of this coral is a clear regional impact of global warming, says Neil Kaplan at the Woods Hole Institution. 
A new report attempts to quantify the impacts from climate change by looking at very... That's a little little dense, even for me. Last month was the hottest June ever recorded worldwide and the fourth consecutive month that the combined global land and sea temperature records have been broken, according to the U.S. government's Climate Data Center. 2010 is now on course to be the warmest year since records began in 1880. The trend to a warmer world is incontrovertible. According to NOAA, June was the 304th consecutive month with a combined global land and surface temperature above the average of the 20th century. The last month with below average temperatures was February 1985. There were temperature anomalies. Spain experienced its coolest June since 1997. And Guizhou in southern China, which had the coolest June on record. In a further sign of a warming world, the extent of sea ice in the Arctic was at its lowest for any June since satellite records started in 1979. And the Jakob Isbre Glacier, sorry about that, I apologize to you, the glacier. I'm apologizing to a glacier on the radio. One of the largest in Greenland lost a seven-square-kilometer chunk of ice between July 6th and 7th, one of the largest single losses to a glacier ever recorded. And um, from science, from the na- proceedings of the National Academy of Science, although preliminary estimates from published literature and expert surveys suggest striking agreement among climate scientists on the tenets of anthropogenic man-caused chi- climate change, the American public expresses substantial doubt about both the cause and the level of scientific agreement. A broad analysis of the climate scientist community itself the distribution of credibility of dissenting researchers relative to agreeing researchers and the level of agreement among top climate experts has not been conducted and would inform future discussions. Now, in a publication in the proceedings, they use an extensive data set of 1,300 climate researchers and their publication and citation data to show that 97 to 98% of the climate researchers most actively publishing in the field support the tenets of anthropogenic climate change and the relative climate expertise and scientific prominence of the researchers unconvinced of it are substantially below that of the convinced researchers. You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. On August 5th, one of the largest glaciers off the coast of Greenland lost about a quarter of its 43 miles long ice shelf. It just separated and sort of started to float away. If you look at the satellite images, it's very clear that this new ice island is now independent. Why did this happen and what could be the consequences? Andreas Menchu, associate professor at the University of Delaware's College of the Earth, Ocean, and Environment, has been researching this area since 2003. Professor, thanks for being with us. Um, Thank you for having me, Alison. 
Tell me about the work you've been doing studying this area. The National Science Foundation funded a group of us to, to, to study or quantify and understand how the Arctic Ocean discharges fresh water into the Baffin Bay and subsequently into the North Atlantic to the west of Greenland. And all of this is about um, 50 miles to the south of Peterman Fjord in the adjacent Narrow Strait. Can you describe what that looks like, what the Peterman Fjord glacier looks like? It's hard to get a, a, a feeling for how vast it looks. Mm -hmm. So you have vertically sheer cliffs that are 3,000 feet high or more. And over those sides, you have tiny little glaciers um, spilling over. That's what you often see on, on cruise ships in Alaska. Um, but the, 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 the actual Peterman Glacier is very hard to discern because it's so flat. It doesn't stand out. So, so it looks as a vast, flat expanse with vertical cliffs to the side. And um, it's only when you get really, really close within um, half a mile or a mile that you guys, oh, I mean, this is really kind of six meters, seven meters above the sea surface. And um, the ice has a very, very different um, color and um, feel to it. There's boils of water surrounding it, so little pieces of ice that go one way at one location and another way the other location. You can, you can literally see a very turbulent churning of water at the face of this glacier. When you heard about this ice island separating, what did you think? Oh, let me get the data and have a look at it. <laughs> let me see if this really happened. And, um, I mean, what, what, what can I do and how big is it and what it's going to do? And I was terribly excited. I thought this was, wow, kind of, I mean, I've never seen this before. And let me, let me get to work and, and call up my colleagues. And they called up me and we're sending emails back and forth. And one person started to working on figuring out what was the wind doing. Another person was trying to figure out what is the tide doing while I was downloading the data from NASA, not the pictures, the, the, the actual data. And then I drafted up and was counting little squares to see how big it was. When you and your colleagues boiled down the numbers and, and you finished looking at some of the data that you downloaded and exchanged, can you uh, explain for us what kind of numbers you came up with in terms of the size of this ice island and, and what it's comparable to? And the, the, the numbers that I came up with based on the, the NASA data that I downloaded and processed were 240 square kilometer in, in area and assuming a certain depth that I took out of the literature of um, 75 meters is what I used. Then I came up with a volume of about 18 cubic kilometers. But those numbers, since I'm not a glaciologist and I don't really know how big those are, I tried to come up with a comparison of, of, of what that was. And since Manhattan is about 60 square kilometers in area, so it's four times the size of Manhattan, and in terms of volume, to see how much fresh water this is. And it came out to about two to three years' um, supply of keeping the Delaware River flowing with fresh water the way it does. Was this an event that could be predicted? Prediction is a well-defined word in science. So I would say you probably can predict it better than you can predict an earthquake. 
I mean, you know an earthquake is going to happen in California along the San Andrea Fault. But can you predict it? No. But you expect it. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of smaller earthquakes happening all the time. So there's lots of smaller breakups on this glacier happening all the time. And scientists, not just me, um, I mean, Dr. Melling, um, Dr. Jason Fox, lots of people have been expecting that this would break up. So it was not a surprise at all that this glacier would discharge or, or cast a large ice island. It was just exciting when it actually happened. <laughs> yes, and then it was much, much bigger than what had anyone expected. So I, mean, I think it was at least twice the size of what we expected. And um, it also says something about our lack of understanding that looking at the image, everyone had an idea that it would break pretty much at the same location where it was um, sticking out like a sore thumb um, with, with water on both sides for the last couple of years. Um, but it actually broke up much, much further back. And so that is, I feel, an exciting opportunity. Why did it break up? Where did it break up? So um, expectation, yes. Prediction, no. Some advocates of policies towards reducing climate change have suggested that this is an example of the detrimental effects of climate change. You've had a much more cautious approach. Tell me what it is and, and why you're much more cautious. It actually turns out that even a carving, a breakup of this massive size is rather insignificant in the overall mass balance of the glacier because 80% of the ice lost is lost by melting from the ocean below. So that means that the process, the physics that, that, that melt this glacier are out of view, happen year-round, summer and winter, and involve delicate physical processes at the ice-ocean interface. And because this big breakup constitutes less than 10% of the total, the breakup of ice at the front of this glacier is a small factor in the overall mass balance of this glacier. And if there is a global warming influence on that, that probably is a percentage also. So you have a small number, global warming, um, on a small number discharged by icebergs that I don't think raises to the level of attributing this to global warming. Um, global warming plays a role, almost certainly, um, but I'm just as certain that it's a small role um, for this specific glacier, for this specific breakup. Is ocean warming an issue that people should pay attention to? I think ocean warming is an issue that people should pay attention to. But and and I had I had a master's student um, four years ago, and what we found, and this is a little further to the south, it's, it's not relevant for this specific glacier, but it's relevant for much of West Greenland, and where the glaciers are melting and retreating, and there is a massive amount of loss, not just in one glacier, but over a larger area. So, and that is probably related to the warming of the adjacent ocean. And we quantified, um, my student and I, we quantified that the ocean in Baffin Bay, below about 500 meter depth, um, has increased by about 0.1, plus or minus 0.06 centigrade for every 10 years. Now, that's 
statistically significant at the 95% confidence level. So that's, 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 that's the science, and that's how it's being formulated. But it's not very appealing because you don't see it. And it's not trivial to make the connection. Okay, now we have a warming ocean. How that heat is being transported is getting towards the face and underneath the glaciers. And then we don't quite understand yet how the physics actually worked that a warmer ocean is doing the actual melting and how, how that changes over time. And, and that's the part with climate change. I do not doubt that, that our climate is changing and the ocean temperatures are changing. And there's incredible amount of variability on top of that. And a trend is part of that variability as well. Or I feel it cheapens the debate, mm-hmm. the scientific and the political debate, to say for every event that we see, oh, that's global warming, oh, that's global warming. Because it's in a way sloppy thinking because we stop inquiring about why is it happening. And because global warming is not explaining it. It's, global warming is global. So um, if you take averages over large areas, I mean, those are important everywhere, and they're happening ev- everywhere at that point. But as far as global warming is concerned, or, or if you take large enough averages, the, the drought in Russia... Um, and the, the, the monsoon rains, the heavy rains in Pakistan, the average out in terms of moisture, um, the average is small if you take the average between those two events because one is large negative and the other one is large positive. So, so, so that's why the global warming is not always the important part. What is important, I think, for our understanding and to better predict this eventually is to understand the detailed physical processes. And this big breakup, is giving us an opportunity to study that. I mean, I really want to stay out of the policy arena. That's something that I'm struggling with as a, as a scientist. Sure. I mean, where do I come down and how do I come down? But if people push me hard enough and want me to say something, I have a hard time giving in. Um, it, it, it's one thing to um, debate and discuss um, over a beer or in, in, in private or in, in the scientific literature. The ice island that has broken off, what are the concerns now that it's on the move? Um, I think the concerns now that it's moving, and I can tell you how fast it's moving because I'm still working on this. I just did that this morning. <laughs> it's moving at about five centimeters a day. So, so, so it's not exactly speed racing. So it's moving very slowly um, towards um, a narrow strait, which is where our study has been going on since 2003. It will turn south because that's what the prevailing currents are, the prevailing ocean currents. And it will then exit narrow strait and eventually perhaps um, reach um, Newfoundland. Now, then the worry is kind of what can it do? Well, it can break into smaller pieces. That's, that's going to happen. There's kind of a few oil platforms off the coast of Labrador. So there's worries. I don't think ships have to worry too much because there's, first of all, not that many ships. And I think, yeah, I read reports that the Canadian Ice Service is already planning to put beacons on this, and this will be very, very closely monitored. And since since it will not get to those areas um, where there's oil platforms and such for another two or three years, um, the oil industry out of the Puntland, um, they, they are pretty relaxed about it at the moment because... Well, we'll check back with you in two or three years to see how it's going. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Andreas Menchow, thank you so much. When you're on a holiday, you can't find.
Everyday American families make choices about where they live and how much they drive. And those decisions, multiplied millions of times, can have a big impact on global warming. NPR's Elizabeth Shogren went to one of the nation's most congested cities, that's Atlanta. In the first of our two stories, she introduces us to a family that moved from the city to the suburbs. This is Michelle Carvalho's dream house. It's 3,000 square feet. It has five bedrooms, a two-car garage, and a big yard. I guess I had this vision of once I had kids, we would move out further because of the schools and the area. So I, I like it. I mean, there are trade-offs. Like the fact that it's only 7.15, but her husband left for work an hour and a half ago to beat the traffic. There's also her long commute and big heating and air conditioning bills. These are trade-offs that millions of Americans have been making for decades to live the American dream. But it comes with heavy costs for families and the global climate. We're upstairs in the Carvalho's nursery. Michelle is getting her 16-month-old son ready for daycare. His name is Galileo, after his father. There you go. Now you look happier. The daycare is 10 minutes away. Michelle drops her son off and then her real commute begins. Depending on traffic, it can take anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to drive to Emory University, where she works as a cancer prevention researcher. But first we stop at a gas station. Gas is 3.05 today, so it's actually on the high side. The tank in her Nissan Altima holds 20 gallons, and she fills up once every five days or so. So does her husband. When the Carvalhos lived in the city, they had one car. But when they moved to the suburbs, they needed two. Both get a lot of use. The amount of gasoline they burn is the biggest reason the family's greenhouse gas emissions have more than doubled since they moved. Back on the highway, traffic slows a few times, but doesn't stop. It's a good day. Here we are going into the parking deck. The 24-mile commute took an hour. That's typical here. The average Atlanta resident with a job drives 66 miles every day. In fact, people here drive so much that if you add up every commute and every trip to a store or soccer practice on just one day, you get a number that's larger than the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Catherine Ross, a professor of transportation and growth at Georgia Tech, says commutes are so long here because as the area grew, there were no natural barriers to limit sprawl. We just took advantage of that and decided, well, I'll just go a little further out for a lot more house for a bit cheaper price uh, without really worrying about what it meant in terms of getting to and from your job, moving your children around, uh, visiting your family and friends, making those everyday stops that we all have to make. Ross says the toll all this takes on the environment is not sustainable. So we grew because we could, and now we have to change because we have to. When I meet Michelle Carvalho after work, she has a couple errands planned. She's leaving on the early side, just before 5 p.m. By the time she gets home, it'll be 7.30. Ironically, only six minutes after leaving her garage, we pass by where she used to live. Just down the road is where she did most of her shopping. I miss the proximity, but not the place that I live. The Carvalhos didn't even look for houses near the university because a new house here, as big as theirs, could be triple the price. And Michelle says buying a house far from her job didn't seem like a problem. I just was doing what my parents did and 
it wasn't such an odd idea to have a long commute somewhere. But scientists say with so many people making the same choices, the planet is paying big costs, like shrinking Arctic ice and more intense hurricanes, wildfires, and droughts. During the slow slog towards the suburbs, Michelle admits she doesn't really like her commute. The mornings are fine, the afternoons are just a little bit more frustrating just because it is much slower. We're going 16 miles an hour right now. That's right, 16 miles per hour. The speed limit here is 65. We finally reach her first stop, Target. It took us 40 minutes to go 15 miles. Inside, she goes from one side of the big store to the other, getting things on her list coffee, goldfish crackers, socks for herself and the baby. Then she's off to the mall. I'm gonna guess that it's gonna take 25 minutes depending on traffic. In fact, it takes 35 minutes. At the mall, she buys what she needs and then heads to the food court. Here's another trade-off. Her long commute eats up her cooking time, so she often picks up dinner on the way home. Tonight, it's Little Tokyo. Two and a half hours after leaving work, the end is in sight. We're both waiting at the door and... Hello! Come in. Want a hug? The family sits down to eat around the kitchen table. Although moving to a suburban subdivision was second nature for Michelle, it's been hard for Galileo, who grew up in a high-rise apartment in Brazil. He complains about the chores and the yard work and all the stuff he has to buy to maintain the house. And he's shocked by the high energy costs. Their January natural gas bill was almost $300, triple what they paid to heat their last apartment. Their summer electric bills are also three times as high. But Galileo says he can't figure out how to cut their energy costs or reduce their driving. There's no way that we can use public transportation living in this area. I mean, I wake up at 4.15 already. <laughs> so while the Carvalhos feel the blow their lifestyle delivers to their budget, they're not aware of its impact on global climate change. I never really thought about it, because we get so caught up with the day-to-day -day activities that we do what we need to do to get through that day. Still, when Michelle weighs all her priorities, She's happy with the decision to move to their big, beautiful house. While somewhere in my priority list, being environmentally conscious is on there, but it's not going to be as high as what can I afford, what does my family need. Her husband, Galileo, just got a great new job. It pays more, but instead of commuting 40 miles a day, now he'll be driving 70. Elizabeth Shogren, NPR News. The Onion Radio News. A family of five is found alive in the suburbs. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
The Holzapple family, long feared missing or spiritually dead, was found alive in the Chicago suburb of Buffalo Grove today, somehow managing to survive in the hostile environment for more than eight years. Rescuers discovered the five-person clan after a survey plane spotted a signal fire from a barbecue grill. To protect themselves from the elements during their long ordeal, the Holzapples fashioned a three-bedroom ranch-style lean-to with brick facing and white aluminum siding. Paramedic Mary Gill was first on the scene. Their stomachs were bloated from years of soda and fast food, and they were all suffering from severe cultural malnutrition. The whole samples have been returned to civilization for now, though trips to the Art Institute of Chicago and a nice Peruvian restaurant intended to reacquaint them with urban living have been met with confusion and resistance. Royal Redland for The Onion Radio News online at So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. We've been looking at the way American lifestyles affect climate change. For example, your commute may affect the climate. And today, from Atlanta, we will meet a family that shortened its commute. It's the second of two stories on how the choices we make about where we live have a big effect on the planet. Here's NPR's Elizabeth Shogren. It's still dark when the Taylors start their day in their swanky, compact loft apartment. Baby, are you ready? Malika Taylor and her 11-year-old daughter, Maya, ride the elevator and walk a few blocks to the school bus stop. Maya's backpack has wheels, and she rolls it behind her. The Taylors used to live the typical suburban life, the kind that helps make America the world's top contributor to climate change. But three years ago, they moved to Atlantic Station. It's a new community in midtown Atlanta, designed to put jobs, homes, and shopping all in one place. Their lifestyle changed dramatically. 720. Here she is. Hi. Malika Taylor walks briskly towards the apartment complex where she works as a property manager. She says she moved to the city because she was fed up with all the hours she spent in her car. There's some weekends where I don't even use my car. My daughter likes to go to the movies, so maybe we'll go to a movie or. Um, and all of her friends, you know, we're the house that everybody wants to come to, so <laughs> her friends come and we'll just kind of hang out and walk around. That's the whole point of developments like this. Walkable communities are springing up around the country. Proponents say they help cut pollution from cars, including carbon dioxide, which contributes to climate change. Less than 10 minutes later, Malika Taylor arrives at work. She hasn't burned any gasoline or spewed carbon dioxide into the air. Now, I have to admit, if it's raining or really cold, it's dry. 
but the drive is less than a mile and doesn't have much impact on global warming. That's unusual in Atlanta. The federal government estimates Atlanta residents on average travel 32 miles each day in cars. But the people who live and work in Atlantic Station drive about a third that much. We don't often think of a development as a way to solve environmental problems, but this is really a unique example of kind of growing your way into better environmental quality in some ways. Jeff Anderson helped steer the project for the Environmental Protection Agency. Now he's president and CEO of a group called Smart Growth America that advocates for environmentally friendly development. At first, the EPA supported Atlantic Station as a way to help Atlanta fight its unhealthy smog problem. Anderson says now the agency sees the community as a model of how America can fight climate change. The two biggest things that we do from a carbon perspective are we heat our houses or cool them, um, or we drive. And when you combine that, that's going to add up to a big chunk of your personal carbon footprint. Reducing her carbon footprint wasn't on Malika Taylor's mind when she moved here. She just wanted her life back. But living here has cut her and Maya's impact on global warming to about half the national average for a family of two. See you guys tomorrow. Bye. Bye. Have a nice day. At 3.20, Malika's workday is over. Today she went home for lunch, as she often does. My dog likes it when he gets a midday walk. <laughs> Since it had started raining, she picked up her car. When she lived in the suburbs, Taylor filled up her gas tank three or four times every two weeks. Not anymore. We get paid bi-weekly. I can fill up on payday and make it to payday without filling up again, which is nice. Her other energy bills shrank, too. When we had a house, you know, easily in the winter, the gas bill was almost $200. The Taylors use electricity to heat and cool their apartment. That bill tops out at around $80. That's about 20% less than the average bill for an Atlanta household. Apartments often have lower energy costs because of shared walls and smaller spaces. If lots of Americans lived like the Taylors, the nation's greenhouse gas pollution could drop by hundreds of millions of tons. It took just a couple minutes to drive to Maya's bus stop. As we wait in the car, Malika says what she really values is extra time with her daughter. When they lived in the suburbs, it took Malika more than an hour to get to Maya's after-school care. I was one of the last parents getting there, and just the guilt, and uh, I was just really unhappy with the way the evenings were. I felt all I did like was work, cook dinner, go to bed, work, cook dinner, go to bed. <laughs> and commute. Yeah, and commute, yeah. Of course the move didn't come without trade-offs. I can't afford to buy a house in the city. It took me uh, four garage sales to get rid of enough stuff to fit into my apartment. <laughs> um, you know, I thought I purged, and it still wasn't enough, and I had to purge again, but... Here's the bus. How was school today, babe? Good. It takes no time and hardly any gas or greenhouse gas emissions to drive home. Sometimes Taylor has to go back to work, but since she has no commute and starts so early, on days like today, she's done. Maya settles in to do homework and her mom decides to go to the grocery store. Taking shelter under an umbrella, Malika walks all of two minutes to get there. On the way, she points out the places where she and Maya happily fill up their free time. The movie theater is on that back street. It's right down there, so very close. And then they have a little Central Park area in the middle where they throw uh, all kind of different events. During Christmas, they had a, you know, a big tree and they would make it snow. They also walk to stores like Target and Ikea, as well as the supermarket. I forgot to take something out to cook tonight, so 
What are you going to make for dinner? Um, fajitas. Her errand takes less than 15 minutes door to door. Yeah, that's hands down probably one of the biggest perks about <laughs> living here. The convenience, convenience, convenience. It's only 4.20. Maya's already made a big dent in her homework, and Malika has a few hours to kill. Maybe I'll work out, you know, maybe we'll play a game. It's, it makes a huge difference just in the quality of our, our life. While most Atlantans are still at work or stuck on congested highways, the Taylors have a whole evening in front of them. Elizabeth Shogren, NPR News. First it was the polar bears, now it's the walruses. Tens of thousands of walruses have been forced to camp out on Alaska's shores because the sea ice they traditionally rest on has now melted away. I saw a picture of the walruses on the web and it's astonishing. There they are, literally shoulder to shoulder and tusk to tusk, stretching out for more than a mile. Scientists are worried that many of the walruses, especially the calves, could get trampled to death. This is just another example of how global warming is messing with Mother Nature. And we've had plenty of those examples already this summer, from the fires in Russia to the floods in Pakistan to the record heat in New York City. But still a huge chunk of the American public refuses to believe in global warming or in our own role in producing it. The Republican who's running for Senate against Russ Feingold, for instance, says the assertion that humans are the cause of global warming is pure lunacy. Johnson, not incidentally, owns a plastics packaging company. It's in his interest to deny the causes of global warming. And the kicker is, he's got a good chance of beating Russ Feingold. As hard to believe as that is. But believe it, it's not pure lunacy. This is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Just listened to the uh, the October 2 show. At the very end of the show, you'd asked us to call in about our thoughts on religion. And I have been all over the religious spectrum before settling in very firmly and very comfortably as an atheist today. I think that I'm not really, I, the best way to describe me is not technically an atheist, not technically a liberal, but a rationalist. I go for things that make sense. Uh, things that are logical and consistent and can achieve their stated goals. And here's where religion falls down for me. Despite all of the uh, admittedly wonderful things that uh, leftist liberal religious movements have done, starting with civil rights, uh, there's a strong liberal tradition within the Catholic Church, uh, you know, working up from the people. The supernaturalist underpinnings of that mindset to mind are always going to weaken, dilute, 
and undermine what they can eventually achieve because there's always kind of a veto clause that, well, we can always back away from this. Well, we can always stop supporting these things. Um, and so anytime I'm, you know, building coalitions, working with a religiously motivated person on a common goal, I've always got this in the back of my mind. How committed are they to this really? And are they going to, you know, back out tomorrow when they get new revelation? So, uh, yes, from my input on religion, I think we're in more or less the same bag there. So again, love the show. Thank you. Keep it up. Hey, Jay, this is Matt in South Carolina, and thanks again for a great episode, this American Empire one that I just finished watching. I wanted to um, mention that since I have family in the military, um, Dan's comments from that Common Sense with Dan Carlin segment about um, about not sending our troops in for no good reason, it just really hit home um, pretty strongly there. But I, um, so this is a thumbs up for mentioning those people but actually, it comes down for uh, mentioning uh, blast, uh, blast the right. I tried to look for uh, their current stuff, and he was doing it once a month. Um, I'm looking at the history stuff, looking at once a month for a while, and there's been nothing new since June. But um, a few episodes ago was the second time that I heard you mention them. So. Um, are they still around, or do you possibly have a better link for them? But anyways, um, just the short answer is I've learned a lot of uh, more views uh, just from listening to yours and finding some other people uh, that share the ideas. And just in general, thanks for putting together the best of the left. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And today is a really, really perfect example of why I think it's such a good idea that you guys get involved with uh, helping listeners of this show become aware of calls to action of all sorts, uh, you know, big days of action, uh, rallies, protests. Uh, you know, on, online protests and on and on and on. Uh, you guys helping to keep my listeners informed by calling into the voicemail line is, uh, you know, I think can be really, really valuable and an enormous help to me because I just don't have the time to keep up on all that stuff. And, and crowdsourcing this sort of thing just makes way more sense than me trying to do it myself. And I say that today is a really good example of it because I'm actually posting this show about global warming on 101010, which is, it so happens, a gigantic international day of action on climate change that was put together by the people over at 350.org. If you haven't heard of them, um, 350.org is basically the most effective organizing group I've ever seen. And, and they're completely focused on climate change. The number 350 comes from the number of parts per million of carbon dioxide that is safe to be in the world's atmosphere. And they, uh, for the past several months, have been organizing up to this day to uh, to have a, uh, a global work party, they call it. 
and they have, according to their website, uh, the day that I'm talking, uh, 6,759 events taking place in 188 countries. And so um, that's the sort of thing I should have told you about before now. And I just, I don't, for whatever reason, I seem incapable of uh, getting on the ball for things like that. I, uh, I should have told you about it months ago. I should have encouraged you to join events in your area or if there wasn't one in your area to set one up and on and on and on. And um, so, you know, my failure is proof of my need for your help. So if you are aware of things like this or anything else that's, that you know about, call into the voicemail line and uh, hopefully we can make this show kind of a clearinghouse for, uh, you know, activist sort of things so that you don't just hear the news and get frustrated and then go back to your life and not get engaged. So again, if you want to uh, leave a, again, of any kind, comment, question, or activist call to action. The number is 206-202-3410. And to respond to the question about uh, Jack Clark from Blast the Right, he has not vanished from the face of the earth. He still is maintaining a monthly newsletter, although his show is on hiatus. And so the past uh, three or four newsletters he has put out, he has said that uh, he's dealing with some personal issues, that he's he kind of put off some things for a while and, uh, and, and we'll be getting back up to steam soon. Uh, the most recent letter he said, uh, that he put out was on October 1st. And he says, I really appreciate your staying subscribed during this break in the show's production. This way, when I return, I'll have you back right away as a listener. I'm itching to get back. Yelling at the TV screen isn't good enough for me. And then he goes on to say that, uh, you know, handling his personal matters is uh, taking longer than he expected, uh, but he certainly hopes to get back to the show soon. So if you're subscribed to his show, stay subscribed. If you're interested in staying tuned in to what he's up to uh, on a monthly basis, and you can hear a little bit of his thoughts on, uh, you know, what's going on. He, he mentions the GOP pledge to America that they came out recently, and so... Um, he has a newsletter. You can subscribe to that to stay in tune. Otherwise, I think that you can expect that the show will be back sooner rather than later. But, uh, you know, of course, I have no idea exactly when. Speaking of activist calls to action, I want to get back to the John Stewart Stephen Colbert rally happening October 30th in Washington, D.C. According to their websites, the event will be from noon to 3 p.m. I said before that I will be there. I've heard from many of you that you will be there. It makes all the sense in the world that we have a best of the left listener meetup in the city, uh, you know, just after the event, basically. So I am proposing that we meet up at a bar, which is really not my style. I don't even drink, but they're kind of the best things for, uh, getting together and standing around. And so that's what we're going to do. I found a place that I think will work with uh, help from a friend in DC uh, who uh, who helped pick this place out for me. So after the event, I will be at Bar Louie, which is at 701 7th Street Northwest. It's right at the Gallery Place Chinatown Metro stop. It's a few blocks away from the National Mall, centrally located in the city should work for everyone. So I will basically be going there right after the rally, whenever the rally happens to end. So probably around four, but if it goes long, it'll be late. If it goes short, whatever. If you're there, you'll kind of know. So basically the time to meet is around 4 p.m. Bar Louie, 
701 7th Street Northwest. I will be setting up a Facebook event. I will be putting details out on Twitter and Facebook and creating a blog post in, for the website itself, bestoftheleft.com. So you can go to any of those places and you'll be linked around or shown the exact details, times, dates, locations, maps, all that stuff. I'll get that all set up in the next few days. And then, of course, I'll continue to mention it on the show. And I certainly hope to see you there. So now I just want to thank a couple of members. Mary S. signed up for a full year membership starting on August 28th. And Caroline S., no relation, signed up for a monthly membership way back on July 15th and has stuck with the show ever since then. Thank you very much to Mary and Caroline and all the members and donors who keep the show going. You are the absolute backbone of the show. I couldn't do it without you. Everyone can support the show by continuing to tell your friends and neighbors about it. Stay tuned into the show between episodes and spread the word to your friends about it online by joining us on Facebook and Twitter. Details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, are always available in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh,